title of today's message is Zechariah's Prophecy. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 76, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. As we enter into this season that we call Advent, we're going to start by taking a journey to Palestine around 3 B.C. and look for a moment at the um, world that received the Messiah that we call Jesus. And from the spiritual and religious side, it's been over 400 years since a man or a woman rose up and was recognized as a prophet of God. 400 years. Think about that. 400 years of silence since Malachi uttered his last words that God would send a prophet like Elijah to call the people of Israel back to the faith of their fathers. To put that into a little bit of perspective, America is only 240 years old. It's been 400 years. And not only has it been 400 years of silence from God, but on the political and governmental side, there have been over 600 years of constant war, constant subjugation by other nations that have come against them. And if you hear from Sunday school, you hear about over and over again about some of these nations. First, the Assyrian Empire conquers the northern kingdom carries a vast majority of Israel away to captivity. About a hundred years later, the Babylonian Empire rises and conquers Assyria and then conquers the southern kingdom of Judah and completely destroys Jerusalem to the point that it said that not one brick was left upon the other. Jeremiah describes that in Lamentations as he weeps for the fall of what he called the city of God. Seventy years after these events, Babylon has fallen to the Persian Empire, known today as Iran, and the pagan emperor Cyrus orders the rebuilding of Jerusalem. A pagan emperor orders the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Isn't that a God thing? The Hebrews begin to migrate back to their homeland, and facing oppositions on all sides, they still eventually rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And this begins this 400 years of God's silence. During that time in the world, the Persian Empire splits and becomes a Medo-Persian Empire, which then falls to Alexander the Great of Greece. And Greece rules through one general or another for 96 years in Palestine, before they are totally conquered by Rome. And Rome rules Palestine with an iron fist. Now think about what they have gone through as a people during this 400 years. They could never settle on a culture. They never had a normal to, get, uh, to, to come to grips with. As Christians in America, we can be shocked at some of the cultural changes that are happening right now and wring our hands and crying that all is lost. But think about what they went through. They get to Babylon and Persia takes over. They have different laws, different culture, different gods, different governments. They adjust to this and then Greece conquers with them. And they bring different laws and different culture and different gods and different governments. Is there any wonder why there were so many factions in Jesus' time? They're just old holdovers from the previous people who were there conquered by. But now it's Rome. And they were oppressed as the Caesar's rule is strictly and often brutally enforced by these provincial governors who are often very tyrannical in their administration of Rome's rule. So the faithful Hebrews begged God daily that he would send a deliverer like David to set Israel up as the world power once again. 
but for 400 years. That's 10 generations of people. 10 generations of people lived and died under these kind of situations. And there was nothing but silence. Why 400 years? Think about that for a moment. What other incident occurred in Israel after 400 years? You see, God wants us to understand his ways as much as, as us as finite beings can. Therefore, God has created certain patterns that he follows. And the last time something took 400 years to happen, Moses was raised up as a deliverer from their captivity in Egypt, and everything changed for Israel at that point. Now again, it's been 400 years since they came back into their land, and they're needing another deliverer to rise, them up, to rise up and lead them out of captivity. And God was about to fulfill this prophecy. He just did not fulfill the prophecy in the way that they expected. And it was not only for the Jewish people, as it had been in the past. That's the world that Jesus is born into. Then God begins to move his sovereign hand, and Malachi's last words were about to come into fulfillment. In Galilee, in what we would know today as northern Israel, there lived an elderly couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. This couple had never had children, and they're well beyond, way too old to have children now. Then God shows up, and Elizabeth becomes pregnant. Zechariah is a priest of God. He's serving in the temple and receives word from an angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, which this was still occurring in the Old Testament times, was Jesus. Jesus comes and announces his own birth. Isn't that awesome? The angel of the Lord says it, tells Zechariah that God is about to come into the flesh. And his son will be the prophet foretold by both Malachi and Isaiah, who will proclaim the coming of this Messiah and Christ. Zechariah is so overcome with emotion that he doesn't believe what he hears. And because of his lack of faith, the angel makes him unable to speak until his son is born. And when John the Baptist is born, God opens his mouth and Zechariah begins to prophesy about this son that has just come into the world. And we're going to read a portion of that prophecy here this morning in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 36. Zechariah says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And Father God, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you for this time of Advent that we're going to be looking over for the next few weeks, Father. And I ask, Father, that you just build within us an anticipation of your Son's first coming and realize how awesome that is and help that to build a, an anticipation and realization that Jesus is coming again very soon. That this light of the prophecy candle that we lit this morning will shine in our hearts in such a way that we show Jesus to those around us. Father, I just ask this in your name. 
Amen. On this first Sunday of Advent, I want us to consider and meditate that Jesus is the light. And He is the light that is brought into the world. And that light is His second coming again. And I want us to talk about the importance of straining toward that light this morning and why it is so important to look for it and to long for that light. So why must we always long for the light? You know, this last week, whenever I had time, I was sitting out in the woods looking for that elusive white-tailed deer. Still haven't gotten one. I'm going to try again after church um, at some point today. Dave Jolson and I went out on Thanksgiving morning around 6 a.m. We worked our way through the woods until we got to his deer stand, and then I went about 75, 100 yards further uphill into the east, and I found a log to sit on. And I have a note to myself, bring a cushion next time. Those logs are really cold. My legs were numb in about five minutes after, after sitting on that. And as I sat in the woods, there was a stillness in the air as it was still very dark out. We actually walked out there with little lights on our, on our heads so we could see where we were going. And as I just sat there and I took in the stillness of the darkness, you really couldn't see much. And hunting regulations said that you cannot legally hunt or shoot until 30 minutes before dawn. It was probably still 20 minutes before the time that we could, before we could legally shoot or even safely shoot. As I was thinking about this message and how it applied to this situation, as the sun slowly rose in the east, I had a scripture come to mind. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, said, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And as I meditated on this scripture, I realized two things. It spoke to me in, in, in a way. It spoke to me exactly what I was doing right there. I'm in the woods. I have a hunting license. I have a blaze orange covering 50% of my upper body. I have a 30 odd 6 rifle with a variable power scope that's been sighted in. I have four rounds in the chamber with a, uh, the box of ammo on my person. I have a pistol on my side just in case. In my backpack, I have a dragging device for deer and a, and a Camulus cleaning knife set that Tammy had gotten for me. It has four different knives and tools to clean deers. They're sharp and ready to go. I have a great spot for shooting. I have shooting lanes in every direction. I can see down two different valleys. I have the wind on my face, meaning they're not going to be able to smell me. It's a perfect situation for finding deer and hunting deer. Except that it's dark out. It's neither safe nor legal to shoot in this situation. I'm fully ready, but I can't work in the darkness. And it made me think about this message. The second thing I thought is how it relates to all of us. The darkness that is creeping in to our world. Many who call themselves prophets have said that they believe that God has given us four more years of restraint and light to work with. If that is the case then we need to use it well, amen? We need to win as many souls as we can to Jesus Christ. Because the Bible also says that there is a darkness that comes before Christ returns. And when He comes and when He returns, He is coming as a king. 
And as a king, we will be required to account for our lives. Additionally, we're going to want to lay something at the feet of this king, an offering, as a gift. And may that which we lay at his feet represent the souls of those who came to salvation through our obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a principle that I, of what we're talking about this morning. That we want to long and we want to prepare for the coming of Jesus again. Now let's look at how to apply that to our lives. How do we fix our eyes and gaze upon Jesus and his return? Sometimes in life, we can hear something so much that we stop hearing it, or we become jaded, or we become cynical toward that thing that we're hearing. Over the last year, we've heard in the political realms, let's make, make America great again, or I'm with her, or we're stronger together. And these slogans were thrown out upon us until every time we heard them, we just wanted to, to, to break something because it got so frustrating and so old after a while. I got sick of hearing about it. I don't know about you. But there's a reason that people repeated these lines and these ideas over and over and over again. Because they work. There's a billion-dollar industry in New York City on Madison Avenue that makes slogans up. Slogans are important because they help you remember people or products. If you don't believe that, let me give you a couple examples of the power of slogans. If you remember what this is, just say it out loud. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Alka-Seltzer. Oh, what a relief it is. Don't leave home without it. Reach out and touch someone. <laughs> Bernie's got him. Can you hear me now? Good. The quicker picker upper. Somebody's watching the commercials on TV. <laughs> Have it your way. Nope. Burger King. Please don't squeeze the. There we go. When you care enough, you send the very best. Hallmark. Yep. Finger licking good. Kentucky Fried Chicken. And last, the milk chocolate melts in your mouth and not in your hands. M&M's. I love M&M's. Anyone wants to get me something? Get me M&M's. I love M&M's. It's just I. I brought this up to show the power of catchy sayings. However, sometimes we can treat biblical truths almost as like it's one of these advertising slogans. We see it as like a selling point for the gospel or something. And I've been a Christian for almost 24 years now, and if I had a dollar for every time I heard a pastor or preacher say that Jesus is coming again soon, I'd have a nice new pickup truck in my driveway. And... I think the idea that God will call his true church home before the events of the tribulation is one of those ideas that we hear so much that we just kind of say, yes, we know Jesus is coming again soon. And we hear it so much we lose the urgency of the idea. And that's dangerous to our spiritual lives because it's this essential truth that we have to live with. The Apostle Peter said it this way in 2 Peter 
3, 4, when he said, they will say, he's talking about people in the last days, they will say, where is this coming, he promised. Since our ancestors died, everything goes on and on as it did since the beginning of creation. Peter tell, talks about almost like a, a rapture tiredness of, or, 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 or a, a way of just, we hear this so much that we just, it, just, it just turns into noise. The rapture is a supernatural term for the taking away of the church by Jesus prior to him coming in judgment. And there is no timetable for the rapture. Do you know that? There is no timetable on the prophetic calendar other than it happens at some time before the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. It could happen now. It could happen in the future. As a church and as an individual followers of Jesus Christ, we need to rediscover this truth and live by it. If you believe that what you believe is really real, then the possibility that Christ could return right now should cause us to live differently, shouldn't it? Now God the Father left the timing of the rapture vague for a reason. To keep us in obedient suspense. I mean, let's just be honest with each other. If the Bible had in it that the rapture will occur on Saturday, December 3rd at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time, what would we do? We'd live like we wanted to until about 3 p.m. Saturday and then come to church. Some of us would run in at 5 to 6. <laughs> That's just who we are as human beings. It's, 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 it's a consequence of the fall. And because of that, no gospel work would get done. That's why God has left it so vague. In Revelation, it speaks to an idea. It says that the bride has made herself ready. You and I, all of us here, are the bride of Christ. It's an incredible word picture of the type of intimacy that God wants to have with you and me that he would call us his bride. It's a kind of intimacy that Jesus wants to have with each one of us if we will let him reign in and rule in our hearts. And that is why Advent is all about expectation, that he is the Messiah, that the Christ child is coming into the world. And that candle that we lit just a few minutes ago is taught, points to the light of prophecy and hope. And it points to Jesus' second coming to set up a kingdom here on earth. A kingdom where all tears are wiped away and Jesus rules in justice. That's how we apply this idea. Let's look at a couple ways of how to practice it. The Advent season in general, and Christmas in particular, is an incredible opportunity to show the world the true meaning of Christmas. And that is the birth of the Savior of the world. The Bible instructs us in 1 Peter chapter 3, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to get, make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So when you are shopping, show love. When you are in the stores, show love. 
And I hate standing in lines. That's another confession I can make this morning. I hate standing in lines. So I know how hard it is sometimes. Just try to be Jesus to people. I remember several years ago, I was in Kenosha. I'm kind of a procrastinator shopper. I wait till the last minute to shop for things. So I'm usually like either December 23rd or sometimes Christmas Eve out shopping for people. And I was standing in a very long line with all my fellow procrastinators. And there was a lady in front of me who was checking out. She had just written her check, handed it over. And the clerk said, well, happy holidays. And the woman stopped and looked at her and just went on this very loud and obnoxious rant against her. And just starts yelling at this 16-year-old checkout person that Jesus is the reason for the season. And you young punks should learn to respect God or you're going to hell. As a matter of fact, it's young people like you are the reason this whole country is going to hell. Happy holidays. You say Merry Christmas. Now this poor 16-year-old girl had no clue about what she's talking about. She's just, it's company policy to say happy holidays to every customer. And she received a verbal beating for doing her job. I mean, how does that represent Jesus? Not very well, does it? So if people say happy holidays, stop. Smile warmly and say Merry Christmas. Love on people. Be the heart and face of Jesus to these people. I would also encourage you to be your Lord's hands and feet. Maybe you can volunteer at a local soup bank or a local soup kitchen or a food bank. Maybe God will put in your heart to buy toys for a poor family down the street and deliver them Christmas morning. Then ring the doorbell and run. Wouldn't that be kind of fun to watch? Leave a card on them that say, Jesus loves you and he is the greatest gifts and we love you. And therefore, we made sure you had a good Christmas. Find ways. Just open yourself up to God in prayer. And say, God, how can I show people that what I believe is really real? Amen?